Thanks for listening to the Pro Video Podcast. Weekly insights into everything video. Proudly presented by worldpodcast.com. Here's the host, Blair Walker. Hi everybody and welcome to the Pro Video Podcast. Every week we look into different areas of the professional industry across film, television, video, online and so much more. This week we're going to be looking at writing, directing, producing, horror films, short films. We have a very special guest on the show today. Eric 13, thank you for joining us on the Pro Video Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Good to meet you. You too, mate. You too. We connected uh, through Twitter as so many online relationships start. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on the show. I know that you're busy um, and yeah, being based in the US and me in New Zealand, organizing times is a little bit of a logistic nightmare sometimes. Sure, sure. Well, I'm glad it's both daylight here and there. We somehow managed not to fuck that up, so that's good. Can I say fuck that up on your show? Is this, I didn't uh, ask you that. We keep, we keep it clean, but... All right, well, you'll have to figure out where the scrub button is on that one. Sorry about that. No, that's all right. That's all right. Some countries for podcasts, um, yeah, are pretty strict with um, swearing, so... Yeah, we keep it. We keep it in clean. the U.S. If you don't swear on the podcast, I don't think they even publish it. It's just <laughs> worthless. So why put it up? <laughs> Sweet. So, Eric, do you mind just taking a few minutes, mate, and sharing with the audience uh, what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, uh, we're doing a lot. We got uh, suddenly busy in October, which is just you know, it's how film goes, I guess. You uh, spend a lot of time with a lot of irons in the fire, and sometimes stuff works out, and sometimes it doesn't. So sometimes surprise things just land in your lap. So uh, right now, the my biggest focus is we just wrapped a film called Disposition, and we're uh, hoping to tour the entire United States. We have a plan to anyways. You never know how these things are going to work out. But uh, we're planning to tour the entire U.S. and then a bunch of film markets in other places, uh, London, Canada. I think we have some Mexico stuff planned, Berlin. So we're going to try and take it as wide as we can. But uh, we've been working on that. You know, it's been a little art house project of ours for about ah, maybe two years, something like that. And we've gotten it to a spot where everybody's 100% happy with it. And we're sending it out. And now we, uh, we wait and see where our premiere date is. Awesome. Awesome. So disposition. Um it's a, a horror, but a, a horror with a different um, from the normal tropes. Do you mind sure, sharing sure. what um, the premise of this movie is? Well, and this has been an odd thing now, especially going to uh, to see a lot of these festivals around here. You know, that season just ended uh, in Los Angeles and in a lot of, uh, really, a, a lot of the world. But uh, I noticed the trend keeping up. You go to see horror films at festivals. There's a lot of good stuff. I think horror is getting better every year. We're in a great spot for it. But it's also getting really wild. You know, you see a lot of horror comedies, a lot of really uh, big stuff, stuff that pops, audiences scream at it. You know, it's generally, a, it's a very joyous time. And uh, I think that's probably a good thing. But I also really believe in, you know, artist therapy and using it as a Trojan horse and to spread ideas. So we wanted to make something that uses that same modern, you know, we've gotten really good at running uh, buzz sanders to faces and, you know, decapitations and all sorts of weird saw puzzles. And uh, I wanted to get together an amazing crew who works on all that stuff today and use it to more the effect of uh, maybe a, a 70s or even a 60s kind of psychological thriller. You know, back when uh, Coppola was doing Corman stuff, or even Hitchcock, right? Roman Polanski. Yep. These guys who were, um, you know, who were really staying inside characters' heads. And when you saw their movies, they stuck with you afterwards. Uh, you didn't always feel good watching them. Sometimes you buy them and you don't ever want to see them again. But they stick with you. You think about them a lot. Yeah. So that was really, uh, that was really our ambition, and, you know, we kept going back over and over things until we really made sure we felt like we hit that. Awesome. When I looked at the premise of um, a woman stalked by depression, that was something that really resonated with me because um, I work for an agency, but one of our larger, one of our longest standing clients is the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Depression. 
So oh, it's sure. a subject that we've actually worked on a lot of campaigns over, you know, almost 15 years. And, and I, I really felt that that premise, you know, um, for those that do struggle with mental illness and depression specifically, like this is um, a horror on a daily basis for them living through it. To explore yeah. that in a film I thought was really um, striking and made me um, take notice. Well, it's something I didn't think about at the time, but you really don't see it in movies a lot. It's not a, you know, and, and people have pointed this out to me watching it, and the, it's weird. You finish this and you want to do something very different, and then you kind of look around at the landscape and you see that, you know, yours doesn't look like the other children's. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of a weird thing, like getting used to this community and growing up and finding family here and and then presenting the the thing that I'm bringing with and it being uh, kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, really, you know? Yeah. And and so I think that's it's a good thing and a bad thing, but I do feel like we should be dragging these taboos out into the light. And I didn't necessarily set out to make a film about a taboo, but we just found ourselves in a spot where it was, you know, we felt a little weird talking about it all of a sudden. We, we kind of went, oh, wait, people aren't really doing this, and they're certainly not doing it in this way. And so I think, uh, I think for me, when I was writing it, I mean, I came from that same place, and it just seemed like the easiest thing to write. It was something I knew, and... You know, so we started there and what I found as we went on with the project is a lot of people wanted to join up and do it. I mean, people weren't in this to make any money. There were, the investors knew they were losing all their money. Everybody just did it because they believed in it. Yeah. They saw the script and they just, it resonated with them too. And so we just found out of nowhere, hey, we're doing something that doesn't look like what other people are doing. And it turns out there's a little pocket for that. There's a little spot where people do, you know, they feel that and they don't see that represented on screen necessarily. Yeah. Such a poignant thing to explore and the taboos of society, you know, it, it is going to make it stand out. And in this day and age of just the prolificness of content, you, you sure, have sure. to find your voice too to stand out above the crowd. Yeah, well, that gets tricky because there's also this sweeping zeitgeist that just seems to pick things at random. Yeah. The one thing the internet's taught us is that, you know, having uh, really having talent, making things that are good, they seem to have zero correlation with what people see or what gets popular. Sometimes you go out and you see a gigantic movie that did really well. And, you know, it's a great example of this. Everybody in the horror community here is talking about it right now, yep. which is uh, a lot of my really niche horror friends don't like it because of their silly reasons. But it's a really well-made film. It's very scary. But what's interesting about it is that films like this have been coming out every year and no one's watching them. Yeah, uh, Films of this caliber that are this good, that are scary in similar ways, they come out in the theater and it's a ghost town, so yeah. to speak. yeah. And for whatever reason, at certain times, things just pick up and they sweep off. So I don't know. The, the more I do this, the more I think you just make whatever you're going to make and put it out there and see what happens. Yeah. You can't plan too much and think about, you know, the space and, and what people are doing. If you haven't heard a story told before, that's definitely a reason to tell it. But, you know, I think it might be a mistake to try and look for what's, uh, what there's a niche for. Yeah, and fill it, and think you know that might be that might be the key to success. Yeah, success is um, an interesting one where people do see something come out of left field and blow up, and then try yeah. to recreate that. Sure, <laughs> sure. And it feels like you're just chasing um, a ghost trail, really, in that trying yeah, to yeah. create these opportunities. I think you're bang on that. It, it is timing and place. Well, it's a little like the stock market, right? You can see reasons in hindsight why stocks went up or down, but it's kind of a crapshoot while you're doing it. You know, it's kind of just, yeah. yeah, I mean, this company might be doing this thing that feels really good at this moment, but then, whoops, a factory blew up or a thing didn't come out or uh, there's some kind of gaffe. 
And it's the same thing with film. You know, this is the same season. Um, it's very, very sad time for slasher fans because there has not been a Friday the 13th in a very long time. It's, uh, we've had a huge, the largest gap in that franchise. And I suppose, if you believe what's printed about it, there was a plan to do a new Friday the 13th, and then the Ring uh, movie that came out, Rings, I think it was called, uh, which I still haven't seen. I'm part of the problem. <laughs> no one saw it. <laughs> and so the studio went, cancel all our big horror projects. No one likes horror. It's over. Yeah. And it's supposed to come out right about the time that it came out. And then look, it came out and it's huge. So, you know, you try and make these bets uh, as a producer about what will, you know, what will do well or what will gain traction. And again, I think the only safe bet is to just try and make something as, as well as you can. Yeah. Just try to make something good. Try to make something that speaks to people or that conveys an idea. And if the art can at least stand for itself, you know you have something there. Yeah. Maybe it won't catch on now. Maybe it'll catch on later. Maybe it won't catch on later. You know, don't get too married to one idea. And you just keep moving and throwing your stuff out there and see what sticks, I guess. But as a writer and a director, um, going through the process uh, of making your film, like that in itself is a reward for you creatively. So I know that you've got a history of producing, but working on disposition as the writer and director, how how has that journey been for you throughout this film? Well, I mean, I, I love being on sets. And uh, with the movies that I've had some part in before, uh, 31, I didn't spend any time on that set. But Director's Cut, I spent a ton of time on that set, and I just loved it. It convinced me to move to Los Angeles and dumb Silicon Valley, which was my old life now, and uh, do this full-time. And, you know, directing is uh, is really steering the ship, and I enjoy that very much. I like how much integration it has with different departments. You get to just work with everybody across the board. You really get to see the, uh, you know float a lot of trial balloons, see the successes and failures. And that's really, I think, to me, the great part about directing. But I've directed a lot of shorter content before. And, you know, they, they haven't been, um, they've been for such niche audiences. They're for my friends, basically. You know, so I got all this practice in for years making this stuff that people didn't see. So back to your point, it is satisfying uh, making something for yourself and standing back and putting it on the shelf or hitting play and it plays and it's it's there in your iTunes library and it looks good. But the art can't exist in a vacuum either. So that was really our approach with disposition. I kind of took a stop down from everything else I was working on said, all right, I'm going to direct something that's very intentionally for people I don't know. And we're going to uh, very strategically put it into festivals that I never went to yeah. and places I never go and people I never talk to. And we want to reach out and we want to spread some of these ideas and talk to people about them. We'll see if that plan's a success or a failure. But at the very least, you know, then you show up and you do the art and you, you make it satisfying. So, yeah, I, can, I have disposition now. I can watch it. And sometimes I, I get caught up in what we're going to do with it next, and I forget that, oh, yeah, this is, this is pretty damn good. I like watching this movie. So that's satisfying, too. But I do think, you know, you got to get it in front of people. Yeah. So it, it's been a two-year project, you were saying earlier. And mm -hmm. how long was the um, writing, then pre-production, then production, then post? How Were these done in... Um, big chunks or were, was it sporadic? I'm just interested to know about the timing. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of the process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I am, uh, my producer argues with me about this all the time. She's very flattering, but I'm a terrible writer. And a lot of people don't know that because I don't put anything out. I write a ton of stuff and it all just goes in the trash. But once in a while I hit something that fits in a groove and I go, Oh yeah, this is really working. And those are the things that make it. And, uh, you know, w what do I know as far as if that's good advice? But that's certainly what I've been doing. And disposition especially was something that, you know, I just kind of saw it and I sat down 
And, you know, the project I'd been working on right before that was in note cards. It was in three-act structure. We were rearranging these plot points, just grinding away at stuff. And it was taking months, and it just wasn't, you know, things weren't clicking. There were all these questions in the air. And when the, uh, when the idea for disposition came about, I sat down and wrote it, you know, basically in one sitting. I basically sat, sat down, uh, I think I spent three hours. It's been a long time since I thought about this now. It's been a couple of years. But yeah, I think I spent three hours, maybe four hours. You know, you do a lot of drafts afterwards. But really what that was to become was all born on that day. And once we had that script and we all looked at it and went, oh, this is, this is the one. We should shoot this. Then it was kind of off to the races to find the money and, you know, uh, get your band of brothers together and just sort of assemble the crew and figure out who's going to work on it, which is its own art project. No one ever gets to see that part, but that's really, you know, there's, that's a painting in itself. Yeah. Who, who did you bring on board to work on this with you in the various roles? Well, so the first person that, you know, I, I wanted to work with uh, and, and why I moved was Sheila Miyasefi, who's an effects artist that studied under a lot of people I really love. But uh, she worked with really closely with Rob Berman, who was kind enough to lend us his shop for disposition. He created, if anyone's ever seen Donnie Darko, he created the bunny mask. So that's a very important Iconic. symbol to you know yes. my yeah my film background. But he also worked on the thing and worked on uh, the Power Rangers film and just all of these different areas. Uh, just really great stuff. Sheila had worked on Captain America and an amazing film called Sunchoke, a little indie that doesn't get nearly enough credit. And just a lot of different things that I love. And so I met her and we got on really well. And we said, okay, so let's make a thing that has some big effect shots in it. And, you know, we kind of got that idea going back to psychological and then we asked ourselves, who do we want to work with? Well, we want to work with people who are doing today's effects. We want to work with people who are, you know, shooting the horror, basically the horror movies that don't get any, a movie like uh, Don't Breathe that came out or Green Room. These were after we shot Disposition, but those, those ilk of films. For us, it was Digging Up the Marrow and Spiral, you know, some Adam Green films. And, uh, and we looked at those and we basically said, all right, Here's what we'll do. Let's find out who worked on the parts of these films that we like. What do we like about the films? Great. Who made those parts? And we'll make a list. And then we'll go down that list. We'll start at the top and we'll start, uh, you know, thousand no's for every yes. We'll start collecting our no's. And so, you know, we, uh, we start with the DP. That seems to, to my mind, to be the hardest one. I want somebody who's going to shoot this, like this in a way that feels good. So the first person we had on the list was uh, somebody I didn't think we could get, but I'd looked at the movie Spiral a lot, another psychological movie, really loved the way that was shot. So Will Barrett was the name of the guy who shot that. So he was the first on the list. So we make this whole list, spend like a week going through, studying all these films, really finding the right people, and then hunting down their contact info, which is also, you know, we're a small studio. We don't have agents. We don't have managers. So we're doing this ourselves. So I call Will Barrett. He's the first one. And I explain it to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, I can kind of see, like, we'll do purples here. And we can really, like, small lighting here. Great, I'll do it. And I'm like, well, damn, man, I had, like, 50 other names. I, didn't. <laughs> I hope it's this easy the whole way down. So, yeah, Will Barrett, uh, who was in Digging Up the Marrow and who shot almost all of Adam Green's films, was our cinematographer. He brought in a lot of Aeroscope people from the company that does those horror movies. And uh, we got Caitlin Brisbane to help with makeup and effects who, uh, who worked on actually on a lot of that stuff too. And so we just keep going around to these areas. You know, Devin Johnson did the new Last House on the Left, worked on a lot of the engineering for the sound on that and created this beautiful score and post for us. We brought Buzz Wallach on as our line producer so uh, he actually just wrapped his first feature, but uh, he had produced the uh, Camp Crystal Lake, the two-part mega documentary, and the um, the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary, and a lot of these slasher films. 
And then actually, I uh, had worked a bit with people on Tales of Halloween, which was coming out at the time, who also had just a whole, just basically, I saw all these people hanging out that I wanted to be hanging out with. And so I went, great, I love their work, let's go find them. Let's just start snatching them up and see if they want to do this. Awesome. And thankfully, the script spoke to people, which I didn't. Still to this day, I don't think the script was outstanding. But, you know, we gave it to a lot of people and they, you know, that was the nicest thing they ever said to me was, oh, I really love this script or it spoke to me and they wanted to come on and do it. Awesome. I think I lucked out there. <laughs> and that's awesome to hear um, how you brought that team together. Um, I'm just wondering... You mentioned earlier that you came from um, Silicon Valley and I was really interested on how you started in film and and how that process of going from Silicon Valley to um, California. Do you mind sort of sharing that how you got your yeah, career yeah, yeah. in? Well, I mean, I'd made a lot of stuff on my own prior to that. I've been doing this uh, podcast called Double Feature out of Chicago with my co-host, his name's Michael Kester, and he uh, he's a musician. He's in Austin now. Eventually, we split. He moved to Austin. I moved to California. We kept doing the show. So I came to California, started working in the tech industry, and uh, we kept making stuff. We would do Kickstarters every year, and we would make these more and more elaborate Kickstarter videos until the videos eventually became movies. The last one we put out, it was shot on red, went through full grading, 5.1 mix, it's in 4K. I mean, it's no screwing around cinema, but we made it for, you know, 400 bucks and a crew of four people. So it just sort of crept up on us, right? They just kept getting more and more elaborate, these videos, until we started making basically movies for 50 people. I mean, we were giving it to like upper echelon Kickstarter backers as a big thank you. And we realized, wow, we're, we're making these shorts that are you know better than the stuff that's playing in festivals quality wise anyways uh story wise they're no it's a it's a little bs kickstarter video but you know we were putting the work into it like it's some mammoth film and realizing no one's even going to see this so at the time that that was going on i was working in tech and uh, it was really my obsession you know, paying a lot of attention to small details and really, really just, you know, getting your hands in the work. And I had known uh, a magician from uh, Penn and Teller, Penn Gillette, through just through email correspondence. We'd met a couple times, you know, he's a very easy guy to meet. Uh, he hangs around after his show in Vegas and uh, he had a, a show on Showtime, BS on Showtime. And, you know, it was really important to me growing up. So we had met, and anyways, long story short, he wrote a, a wicked smart horror film. Uh, kind of turned into another crazy thing along the way, but he was doing it with a director named Adam Rifkin, who I also really liked, and they were getting money together for it. So I emailed him, and I said, so what do we need to do? Basically, I want to come hang out on your movie, and I will give you money. So now what? And he was like great, let's do it. And that's executive producing, I guess. <laughs> so that's kind of what happened. But, you know, at the time, uh, the tech world was very getting very political and I was having a lot of frustrations in, in that job. And also the community there, my tech family was, uh, I don't know, they were much older than me. They were mostly married, had kids. You know, I'm a single guy, mid-20s at the time. And they, they're the kind of people, who, if they're not working, they're going to bed at like 7 p.m. So I really just wasn't, you know, I didn't have a unit there. And when I came to L.A. for about a month to hang out on this movie and Adam put me in it a whole bunch. And, you know, so I got to run around and kind of help people on some things, but mostly just experience it. And I went, this is the life This I have to be doing this whole time. I'd been telling myself I feel the need to do film, but I can't make money doing it. That's a pipe dream. And I resisted that, and I went to school for something else, and I got a career in something else, and I had it made. And I just had to look at it and go, like, I'm, I'm coming out of retirement. I'm, I need to go, you know, I got to leave my, my totally stable existence that has secured the rest of my life behind, and I got to go hang out with these art kids in L.A., because that's just, that's what felt right to me. Yeah. Nice. 
it's it's a hard one chasing the creative careers and passions when um, so many voices of stability, especially from our parents' generation, where oh, totally where they're really loud and vocal in those influential years when you're coming up and making those decisions. But I've heard it so many times, um, people who are just passionate creatives who can't resist and in the end they loop back around. And and there is a sort of how it feels, right? It's a calling. It really is just, you know, I know a couple of people like that here and they're great. They are just phenomenal. They're the best. They tried so hard to do other things. They're really smart people and they just couldn't. They had to make movies, which is, I mean, it's a funny thing, but, and I I think a lot of people, especially in LA feel this, people outside LA might not know this, but nobody makes any money here. I mean, it's really the top of the top, you know, are comfortable. And then the top of that are rich and everybody else sleeps in their car. (laughs) So, you know, people here try so hard not to make movies and a lot of them can pack it up and go home, but some people just, they have it in their blood and they just can't do anything else. Do you think that, um, the models of distribution with online and marketing content yourself and producing it without needing the big studio infrastructure is a reality now, or is it still just a small fraction of that work that actually makes it? Do you still think that the studio systems own film production? Yeah, well, I mean, coming from, you know, the the real honest answer everybody knows, pick up your phone, make a movie. I mean, everybody says that. And it's true. You can do that. You can make a movie on your telephone. Will that get you seen? Probably not. But will making a movie on a huge budget get you seen? Maybe, maybe not either. The most depressing thing about L.A. is you meet all these filmmakers who've made 50 films. You've never heard of any of them. Yeah, You know, when you browse through Netflix and all that stuff you haven't seen, mostly looks like trash covers. A lot of those are good movies. They just couldn't even afford to give them to a, a company that could put a proper cover on there. But I mean, there's just hundreds of thousands of movies nobody even knows about. Yeah. And so, you know, I think to some degree, if it depends what you're doing, the landscape is so weird right now. You have Netflix, a lot of people they have this misconception that Netflix is free because they kind of, they pay a subscription, they forget about it. So they only want to watch free movies on Netflix. Netflix often doesn't pay you very much for your movie uh, unless it's an original series, which is a whole other thing. So if you don't have your movie on Netflix, a lot of people that just, they'll immediately never see it. That's out the window. It's the same way with theaters. A lot of people see movies in theaters There was a time where if your movie didn't come out in theaters, it kind of wasn't a real movie. Straight to video, you know. That's gone. That's behind us now. So if you make a film and put it on YouTube, is that the way to do it? I mean, YouTube is a a white light bulb in your eyes, and it just begs people to click away the entire time. It's, It's basically like, watch this film, but half watch it while you're, I don't know, reading Twitter or... Or whatever, we're going to put a bunch of ads and captions and other shiny thumbnails you can click. I mean, try and put a two-hour movie on YouTube. That sounds like a disaster. So it's very tricky right now. But I think, you know, the, the honest answer is you can make a movie if that's all you care about on your own with your telephone. That's absolutely true. And people have made interesting content that way. But then there's this whole other question we get back to of the vacuum of, well, do you want people to see the movie? And if so, where does it come out? And how do you do that? And like I said, that's, you know, that's its own project, figuring that out. Yeah. It's great. The democratization thing is great. But also, uh, I know a lot of people are very cynical in this industry that feel like people get paid less every year. Smaller crew gets screwed over more every year. And people, you know, it used to be if you made a movie, you were in. And now you could make 30 movies and never really make it whatever that means. Seems a little cynical for my taste, but also I see it happening a lot. Yeah. So ultimately, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, it's what you're saying about Netflix and the availability. It's it's an interesting one because I know a few people have released content, um, films, documentaries on iTunes and things like that. But, but yeah, you're right. Unless it's... Um, done some success at a um, festival circuit and has some marketing 
push behind it, there's just a sea of content. And just thinking, um, when looking for film, something to watch, uh, it's still pretty dumb way of browsing. Like, you know, with yeah, artificial totally. intelligence, I would almost hope that some of these big players would create a system that go, well, we know you like this. You're really going to love this. And it, it's obscure, but it's in your alley. It feels sure. like we're still browsing the the VHS tapes on a on the shelf still. I mean, Netflix to some degree. I think it's interesting the Netflix rating system. Uh, I don't know how widely known this is, or if it's even true still, actually. But at some time, the Netflix rating system was based not on actual ratings, but on how much Netflix thought you would like that piece of content. But you still have the problem of Netflix is what one percent of all films. Just while we're just making up numbers, I don't know. <laughs> a hundredth of a percent. I mean, maybe even yeah. smaller. If you just, if we sat here right now and came up with the name of a film, just some film from before Netflix existed, what's the chance it's on Netflix? And if we say it's on Netflix right now, what's the chance it's still on Netflix by the time this airs? Mm. You know, they rotate through their content, so it's hard to tell. Then you have the things that they make that they put front and center. But where does that live afterwards? If I really love Black Mirror, I can't buy that on iTunes. I can't own a physical copy of that. So what, it just streams on, it's like a temporary event that's on Netflix as long as they want it to be there. Yeah. So there's an odd question about that too. The whole thing is very unknown right now. I mean, we're not to keep going back over the, the same ground, but I feel like make the idea, put it out there. You know, treats marketing of the film and treats the uh, the way people see it as just another creative question to solve. Yeah. Just as much as how do I light this scene? You know, that's why I like uh, having a hand in the production side and in the directing side. As much as production is a nightmare and a headache, it's also the same questions. It's how do we problem solve this? I want the most people to see this piece of content. I want this content for this specific audience. Yeah. You know? Uh, if you make something, some original content for a place like, say, Shudder, which is the uh, the Netflix of horror films, great service, Shudder, then you know, okay, well, I, I know my exact audience I'm talking to. So there's pros and cons to all of that. It's just with this saturation of how much content is out there, we just have no idea at this point, you know, how to uh, how to best find that. And if we leave it up to individual companies like we do Netflix, they'll tell you the very best thing that you can watch from their library. What about all the other libraries? What about stuff that's not in libraries? Yeah. You know, what about things that are playing in theaters? And if you don't know about them in the three weeks they're in theaters, then you don't see them in theaters. So there's a lot of questions around this. There's a lot of uh, a space right now for someone to fill to you know, to really recommend films to people and, and to drive them to different services based on the content. Yeah. I'd love to see a restructuring this whole thing to get away from the Netflix type monopolies that are like the old studio system and more towards let's talk about a movie. Now, where do I see that movie? Instead of let's talk about I want to go on Netflix tonight. What's in the Netflix store? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It really does. I also think that for film... Content's the important thing, right? It's, I yeah. mean, the movie is the movie. The yeah. story, nobody, nobody's passionate about Netflix, really. I mean, no. they might really like the idea, but it's not the art. It's not what's speaking to them. I think we just always keep the conversation to the movie. I think... And, uh, and we got to figure out how to do that. Yeah. I think what the perception is, is that Netflix is creating content and long-form TV shows um, have really bloomed in the last five years especially, um, but really since the writers' strikes uh, quite a while ago, where before then um, binge-watching TV shows just wasn't prolific like it is now. Now people are really really consuming a lot of TV shows and binge binging on it. And so I suppose Netflix is seen as the content creator providing those good series but there's you know it's not just them there's hbo and uh screen time and so many others that are producing this and amazon and i've heard whispers of apple getting into it as well so as a filmmaker um do you see that it's also a competition with the type of content versus with long-form tv shows as well 
Yeah, I mean, TV's another beast because you can pick up a phone and shoot your own movie, but good luck shooting your own TV series. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of people have success in that space yet. The completely independently made, look, we went off and shot this 12-episode series, who wants to pick it up? It's a lot, you know, it's a lot more to orchestrate there, and it's money, too. Although you have shows that entire runs don't cost half as much as a, a big-budget movie does. But, you know, I think it is a good place to get into. I like that Netflix kind of has a monopoly on their own content. I actually think we'd be a better world if Netflix dumped everything they didn't make off their service. So you wouldn't have this question of, oh, is it available on Netflix? If not, I won't see it. It's just, oh, did Netflix make that? Oh, good. I own the Netflix service. Yeah. I'll go see it there. The HBO model. And I think... Yeah, I mean, nobody was complaining about HBO doing this. You know, and HBO would pick up movies and stuff. But if you had an HBO original series, there's prestige to that. You go there and you watch it. There was no question of, uh, oh, is that, you know, it's kind of like we're in an area now where 15 years ago we would go, oh, I'll catch it on cable. We're kind of doing that with all film now. And I think that's uh, eh, dangerous, might be too loaded. Nah. It's great. It's dangerous. It's a yeah. dangerous, dangerous thing to do. You're missing out on a whole lot of stuff that way. Yeah, with with um, larger producers like Disney exiting the Netflix relationships and starting up their own streaming services, I think it will be a model that's going to definitely have to change. So it'll be interesting to see exactly where the likes of Netflix are and Amazon and all, all the others in a few years' time. Yeah, not, uh, Disney is the ultimate example of, you know, a very love-hate relationship with Disney. Yeah. On one hand, they revitalized Star Wars and gave us brand new Star Wars content. On the other hand, they are single-handedly the most user-hostile of all content. I love you, Disney. Give me money to make movies, please. Uh, but they are. They take their films, they put them in the vaults, they create this artificial demand, you know, now they want to pull their content all, off all these these services, these different platforms, which is totally within their right. But I think it can be within their right and also be kind of a dickish move. So Yeah. And now it's time for the Pro Video Picks. Every episode we have Pro Video Picks. This is just an opportunity for the listeners to sort of uh, get some insights from you on things that you like. So... First up is the pro video pick. What's your pick for this week, mate? Well, I mean, I get a lot of stuff, but I think the one thing that I'm loving the most right now that is really just uh, helping me so much in L.A., and I say this because it's it. why plug YouTube, which is the real answer. I love YouTube. I, I figure out how to do everything on YouTube. I loathe Google, but I love YouTube. <laughs> but they don't, need, they don't need our plug. There's a service in a, a couple cities in the U.S. called ShareGrid. This is a, uh, something that's been so inspirational for me. It's been such a help. But basically, ShareGrid allows people to rent out their equipment. And it's, you know, it's, uh, what would they say? Probably something like Uber for camera equipment yeah. or something like that. So it's peer-to-peer lending for that. They provide uh, insurance as an add-on for that, or you can use your own insurance. And so what that's allowed us to do as a smaller studio is buy a lot of our own equipment and then pay it off by renting it out. And then when we're, you know, stuck in a tight spot, something breaks down or, um, you know, we want to try out an antique lens. We wouldn't do that, but I don't know, some weird Bluetooth adapter. That's more our style, I guess. (laughs) Then you could pop on ShareGrid and find somebody who will give it to you for, you know, 20 bucks for a day. Sweet. And then it's yours and you play around with it. So, you know, it's nice because you get to go on there and try out all sorts of stuff you don't have access to. And it's also a great democratization where people can, uh, they don't have to be part of a system. And that's a a big part of getting the keys out of the sort of Hollywood system and, and letting people make content on their own is there is a decreasing amount of the sort of it's about who you know ism that used to be such a, a crucial thing here and there's still a lot of that but it, it used to be you can't make a movie if you don't know people and then we started getting cameras in our homes and suddenly you could sort of do that but there's still a lot of things you can't do 
And so now these services that will allow you to share equipment without knowing a rental house, without knowing a guy who knows a guy, you know, you bust something on set and without a service like ShareGrid, you better hope there's a rental house that's open that has what you need close by. Otherwise, people here just all call their other, you know, their other camera friends or whatever and grab it. Yep. And now you don't need to have camera friends. You have ShareGrid. You pop on there, you grab something. So uh, I've absolutely loved that service. Sounds awesome. Um, hopefully it spreads to other areas and other regions of the world as, as well. I've, I've heard of similar um, services um, for power tools, actually. I thought that that was really... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So those things that when you need them, you need them, but you don't need them all the time. So yeah, definitely. Oh, that's an awesome pick. Thanks for that. And um, just wondering, have you got an inspirational video that you'd like to share with the listeners? I do. I don't know if you want to put up a link for this or people could probably search for it. We'll have links to all of all of this and um, what we've been talking Beautiful. about today. Oh, that's good in case I need to find the link for it because I don't know where the hell it is. <laughs> but um, yeah, so this is a, a video called Intention that came out. This was made by... Uh, some Apple creative ad executives. But it's uh, it's a really an abstract piece. It doesn't have a lot to do with Apple outside of what the, that particular company's sort of DNA is. But it talks a lot about the choices that you face in a creative position where, um, actually, I, I think this is where that quote comes from. I believe this is a, a quote from some Apple people, a thousand no's for every yes. Anytime you accept something, you are by default turning down all these other things. I was using it actually to uh, to talk about the thousands of no's you get when you ask for something <laughs> uh, in Los Angeles, but I suppose it applies to that too. But you know, you you shave away these details, you distill things to their basic essence, and at the heart of that are ideas. And so it's really about being faced with all of these different roads. It's not as, uh, as if we face forks in our life so much in the road as we do just an infinite number of opinions, as infinite as the number of pieces of content you could go watch. Yeah. And you need to clear away the noise and distill things down to their basics and really decide what's important. Where do we go forward? And, you know, that can be a really tricky question as you start expanding uh, all these people you talk to, different projects, different ideas. I made the mistake when I first moved here of I would just attach myself to anything that anybody wanted to do. I was just down for making stuff. Let's do it all. And uh, this is a nice problem to have in California that we didn't have in, say, Chicago, where so much stuff is being made. I mean, you dilute your time very quickly doing that. So... It's a really inspirational video for me to see. Anytime things are getting too cluttered or there's too much on my plate, uh, I like to, to watch that and really just, it's almost like a meditation for me. It helps me just shrink down all the noise in the world and focus on you know the critical details, really just stay right in that lane. And uh, you know yeah, just, just the small details, the things that matter. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm looking to have that on my uh, bookmarks to use to calm myself when the chaos is rumbling around me. So I'll be watching yeah, that yeah. a lot more in the future. So thanks for that. And uh, who are you following online? There's quite a few people. I'm a big Twitter person. So um, I think uh, I follow a lot of directors on Twitter. Um, some people are, you know, people I work with. Some people are people I'd love to work with. Some people uh, would probably never work with me if they if they owed me a favor. But just across that entire gamut, I like to see what other people are doing and what they're talking about, and find another way to stay connected to those conversations outside of the little, you know, the little in person bubble that is the sort of like industry parties and things out here. So. Um, I would say uh, the first is my co-host, Michael. Uh, he's at playing Michael on Twitter. So Michael and I have been doing, like I said, the show Double Feature. Uh, Doublefeature.fm is the, uh, the site for that. And Michael watches a lot of movies. And he brings me, you know, he got me into horror. And he brings me all these amazing, interesting horror movies. And uh, 
he's been the person I can bounce ideas off of and really somebody who's, you know, anytime I have a question about sort of the history of film, not how to do a film thing or, but more like, hey, what's the, the best scene where someone's arms get pulled off? You know, these types of things. Michael's tuned into that. Google of horror films. Uh, yeah, really. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's an encyclopedia and that stuff's really important yeah. to, to have those people around. You'd be surprised how many people really on the inside of the industry are so busy making things. They're not, you know, out there really seeing a lot of that stuff. There are two people I worked with on our previous project, two suicide girls, actually. Uh, one's named Erica Fett. Um, the other is Ruby True, Suicide. Uh, I think hers is uh, Ruby underscore True. She did, both of them do really cool cosplay stuff, just inspirational. They're always making cool stuff. They're always doing very interesting visual things. Ruby does uh, a lot of body paint, and she's on Twitch. And so she will do these elaborate body paints and then play games on Twitch and stream that way. Uh, she did a, a Jack Skellington one where she blacked out a lot of her body and then just painted white into the frame. But you would, I mean, they're unbelievable to look at. They're really, I have one pulled up now. I mean, they're just, they're absolutely crazy to see. So just great artists. And then uh, a couple people from Areascope, actually directors Adam Green and Joe Lynch, who's uh, also has some cool stuff coming out this year as a movie called Mayhem coming out. They have a show called Movie Crypt. So if people haven't heard this, it's actually pretty well known now. Uh, it's these two guys. They've made a bunch of movies and uh, TV stuff and web content and just really great horror. And uh, Joe's a big action enthusiast, too. And they talk a lot of inside industry stuff and focus especially on just how effing hard it can be sometimes. Yeah. And trying to, you know, trying to not back down and not give up and really just keep pushing forward and I think seeing other people, it's the same thing as we talked about with disposition, seeing other people have the same struggle as you, knowing somebody else got through that or is working through it or just, you know, the company of misery, that can be really helpful to me. I think that can help a lot of people. I agree. I think that so much of social media only reflects this beautiful, polished um, outlook of life and the 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 grind, the hard work, the the failures that I don't actually feel are failures. They're just part of the process. They don't get the it's light shine on it them. It is. Yeah. And even, you know, even sitting here and saying that and knowing that and being somebody who kind of harps on that stuff a lot, how hard things are and how nobody has money and trying to, you know, really get out all the, the little secrets of shady Hollywood that people don't know, how we all live in the valley and sleep in our cars, that type of thing. Um, not literally true. We don't all sleep in... I'm lucky enough to have a roof over my head, but, uh, but you know, it can get pretty bleak, but even the other day, uh, some director friends, I was on Facebook and I saw somebody write a little note, you know, uh, Hey, congrats on the good news. I know stuff gets really tough sometimes and can be really hard for you. And I'm thinking really for those guys, they're always so happy. And it strikes me too. I just forget that human beings have problems, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's such an easy thing to over. It sounds so simple, but in the moment you can, you can forget that it's so easy that no matter how great people's lives look, everybody struggles to different degrees with stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I think we see that with depression, especially suicide in the industry, everybody pops up and kind of goes, Oh, we had no idea afterwards. And, you know, a lot of people hide their struggles that way. I like that we're pulling a lot of our personal struggles out into the open and shining a light on them. That's not going to be true for everybody, but, you know, be kind to each other and, and know that uh, people you wouldn't expect to be going through that stuff are going through it too. Yeah. Yeah. The more people having those conversations, the strength that gives others who don't feel secure to speak up gives them the opportunity to so. step yeah. forward. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, we're seeing that we're seeing that now with uh, women in film, especially out here. Yeah. We're seeing that with depression. We're seeing it with issues of suicide. I mean, uh, people are getting a lot better at having open conversations about that. And I think that's part of the evolution of the internet is we're taking things that used to be in support groups and frantically crying for help on Twitter instead. And, yeah. you know, just kind of dragging that stuff in the light. Always good to shine a light on that, I think. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. And uh, where can we follow you online? Where's the best place to find you? 
Uh, I wish it weren't Twitter, but it is. You know, I should probably, I'm an artist, I should post things on Instagram or something, but I am just obsessed with Twitter. I don't know why it is. So it's at E-R-I-C underscore X13. I love talking to people on Twitter, meeting people on Twitter. So tweet me a question or my DMs are open or whatever. Uh, love the chat. And also um, dispositionfilm.com is uh, where all the information about that movie is. Honestly, there's not a lot up right there because it's, it's kind of a secret. The thing that's on there that's important is if you are interested in this movie, you want to see it, you can just pop your email in there and just super simple, we'll email you when it comes to you and you can go see it so you, it doesn't get lost in the shuffle and you forget about it. Cool. So if it sounded interesting, oh, great, go on there and then you'll hear nothing until it comes out and you can hopefully remember this conversation <laughs> and... Uh, and go see it because it's a it's a creepy cool little thing we made we're all really very proud of it yeah well i'm really looking forward to seeing it and i think that it's it's a hard one with the um, festival circuit and just the way that you need to um, release content that you're creating um, quite methodically because you can sort of shut a lot of doors if you put it into the wrong places yeah well especially you know festivals have a lot of exclusivity deals and you know, you play at one place that they won't take at the other place. If it premieres yeah. online, a lot of people don't know that, but there's a lot of politics to it. So that's why no one can see it. And we didn't just put it on YouTube. Yeah. Aside from, I don't want to shine a, a white light bulb in everyone's face as they watch it. But yeah. you can go in there and sign up and there's a little kind of description if you want to tease it out a little more, get an idea of what it's about. But uh, I think it's certainly an interesting thing. I hope it does well at festivals. My fingers are crossed for my own movie. How about that? Well, I'm going to cross my fingers and my toes for you, mate. So That's what I was hoping. That's what I was hoping. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you can follow uh, Pro Video Podcast on the normal social medias. We Facebook page, uh, Facebook group, Twitter, Instagram, and Slack. All those links and more will be on the show notes for this episode. I just want to say a huge thank you, Eric, for being on the show. I really appreciate you coming on, mate, and um, sharing your your latest project and your experiences with the audience. Yeah, and good to meet you too. Yeah, you too, man. I was um, I had to say to you on Twitter, um, "Is Eric Thirteen your real name?" And you're like, "Yeah, it fully is." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. People ask me that all the time. All the time. Uh, my middle name is uh, Alexandra, which nobody asks about your middle name. But uh, yeah, I have an X for an initial, which I, I rather like as well. It's a weird thing in the in the horror circuit because people just assume you you just go by aliases and make yeah. things up. And uh, nobody ever asked Stephen King if that's his real name. But, <laughs> yeah, Eric 13, that's me. Nice, nice. My name is Blair Walker. <laughs> so, um, so your real name, Blair that's Walker. My real name. <laughs> that's incredible. Incredible. And you can follow me on Twitter at Blair Walker. And yeah, really keen for you guys. If you've enjoyed this show, please um, share it, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook. Share it out so other people can come uh, listen as well. Really, really appreciate you doing that. So thank you, and thank you for listening. And thanks, Eric, again for being on the show, mate. Really appreciate it. Take care. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. Okay, bye. Join the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Pro Video Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes.